0: The trend is certainly that people are moving more dollars sooner. Overall, it's a really good thing for our industry. It just means that people are considering this to be a safer asset.
1: Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjit. I'm excited to have Mike De La Gala. He is the managing partner of DGEP Management and DGEMP Management Finance owns and operates solar assets in the US. They specialize in partnering with developers and providing development capital. Mike's both a colleague and a friend and we always have interesting conversations and we haven't actually had on the podcast a provider of development capital. So I thought it would be great to have Michael on the podcast. And Michael, welcome to the podcast. It would be great to talk more about your path and what DGEMP management does and your partnership with Metropolis Capital.
0: Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this one for a while. I always get a little bit envious when I see other people I know on your podcast you had Lauren Carson on not long ago. She's great and good friend. And so it's nice to get my crack at the plate. So thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you for volunteering on the podcast. We're always up for people reaching out to us and asking to be on the podcast. And if you're interested in being on the podcast, you could email us at info at renewenergy.com. But it'd be great to learn about what you're working on and how you add value, because I think you add a tremendous value with providing development capital and your partnership with developers and your experience in project development.
0: Yeah, so that's exactly right. So we are focused on kind of that early stage development part of the cycle so we're working with developers that have gotten to some point in development with regards to their projects we're kind of in like the two to five to ten megawatt range aggregated up into portfolio of maybe like 30 or 50 maybe 75 megawatts that's kind of our sweet spot but we want to work with developers who boots on the ground they're local to the geographic area they're well versed in the project And they just need some capital to get from where they are, which is typically we'll get involved right around site control, maybe some connection application area. So super early stage, maybe there's some ancillary engineering on there, a couple of uh, layouts, prelim designs. And so that's usually the spot where we're looking to get in, which is pretty early. We still consider that binary risk. So there's a lot of points that you still need to prove out to make sure a project's a project. But We want to work with those developers, and we want to form an agreement where we can together move that project along to get to an exit point, whether it's LNTP or NTP or COD. From what we can tell, the market is in need of this type of capital, and so it's been a pretty good fit for us. And we just pivoted to this in in 2017. Prior to that, we were using also equity with same partners, same LPs to own and operate projects. So we do have some projects on our balance sheet, some SREC2 Massachusetts deals and some California old FIT deals. And so we'll keep those on our books, but we've been focused on this development, early stage stuff through to fruition, which generally speaking is NTP.
1: Sure, that is really helpful. And can you talk about, I guess, what are, you mentioned obviously the system size when it comes to projects. Is there particular states that you're focusing on? You own projects in Massachusetts, California, now you're selling it. NTP. What states? Is there specific states that you're focusing on?
0: We're not actively seeking projects in particular states, but we're agnostic as to location as well as anybody else. I mean, states and programs pop up all the time. And and if it makes sense, we'd certainly like to do some projects there. We've been and the advantage of doing this early stage investment is that we've been making pretty early bets as to some programs that are either at the house level, as far as legislature or they're through the house and they're moving on and they're trying to figure out what the program looks like and smells like. So we've made a couple of early bets in Washington um, and that project still isn't, or that program rather still isn't defined, but there are some parameters that are becoming more and more clear every day. So we like that prospect and that's just a regular standard offer contract purpose type deal. So it's not terribly exciting, but it's super clean and easy to market those types of projects. But yeah, we're really opportunistic. So we would look at projects pretty much anywhere in the country, whether it's like I said, this perfect type deal standard offer contract or behind the meter PPA stuff. But to be fair, we're seeing more of the former. So and a lot less of the PPA stuff.
1: Sure. That makes sense. And kind of going back to a point that you were talking about how you guys get involved early stage and the binary risk that's involved. How do you get your investors or your LPs comfortable with that sort of risk? And how do you de-risk the project where are you confident? Obviously not every project will work, especially when you right. talk about early, which creates an opportunity in the marketplace, right? Because there's not a lot of people that are providing development capital that early, which gives right. you a competitive advantage meaning seeing a lot of projects.
0: It's not always easy. And you know, Sean Robinson. And so he and I really, I've been working with Sean for like eight years and we work quite well together. And so it's basically incumbent upon us to defend this project internally to investment committee. And so we're looking at this, not just this one project or this one portfolio, but we're looking at all of our portfolios on a portfolio type theory. So we're looking at this and saying, if a couple of these fail, the rest of the portfolio that we're working on can carry this forward. So that's certainly part of it. And the LPs are comfortable with their understanding of that. And so that's the big picture approach is that this is a portfolio theory and they're not all going to hit. But if most of them hit, you can write down the ones that fail and and still come out ahead. So and then individually, it's really you're right. These are early bets. And so what we're trying to look at is we're trying to handicap and mitigate risks and saying, okay, what's the probability of this program even coming to fruition? And we have some policy advisors that help us read the tea leaves, what's going on at the House level as far as legislature, if it is that early, or if the program is well understood, but the project is early stage, we can project out in a pro forma type way and and understand what that asset should be worth. We'll obviously build in a lot of cushion and we'll build in some budget and a time frame, And we'll try to be super pragmatic and practical about how and when we spend money. So we'll be trying to spend as Little money as possible in the early stages in development as we've shaved the binary risk off the projects we'll start spending more money and as it becomes more clear that the project has legs we'll start moving forward in our relationship with the developer we are financing the entirety of the development and so we're paying fees early on and we're paying for costs going forward and so we'll just make sure that we can kind of control Capital because if we get to a point where X dollars in and there's some fatal flaw or the program doesn't happen or you know a million other things that can go wrong, we can pull the plug on that and only write down what we're into it to date. So we just try
1: to be practical and thoughtful in the investment cycle. That makes sense. That's really helpful. And another interesting point. I know solar is almost like the Wild, wild West with all. Still, the- <laughs> ten years ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> even. As the market gets more sophisticated and mature, but there are a lot of obviously players coming into the market. Everyone says they're a developer. How do you build those relationships with those developers? How do you vet the developers? Yeah, How do you know that you want to work with them. By the way, like even Mike and I will compare notes on developers and try to provide information that we know for sure, because obviously it's just a small industry and everyone. Yeah. With each other. So. so far we've talked about
0: the merits of the project, but the merits of the developer are probably just as important, if not more so. And like you said, it's not always easy. I think getting a good development partner and doing the transaction that we're doing is really central to the success of the project. If that relationship isn't working, The project could be the best projects in the country, but if you can't get it done with your partner, it doesn't matter how good the project is. We spend a lot of time, I'll be honest with you, it's it's a reasonable vetting process for the developer, but it's kind of feel, it's a gut reaction. Like, do we think that these folks are capable? And we're not pinned to track record, like, oh, you've never done a deal before, we can't finance this. We're certainly open to working with first-time developers, and we're currently working with first-time developers it's really kind of like it's a personality thing and it's a skill set thing and we're open to understanding what their skill sets are and trying to leverage those and fill in where we can so our role is not the same every time and their role is not the same every time and so we're trying to be fungible and flexible in like how we work with the developer if we need to increase their scope or decrease their scope to make it work that's how we're approaching it but we've all kissed our fair share of frogs but i will say right now we're working on a handful of projects Uh, with partners that we absolutely love. They're great. We would do projects with them forever. It's very, very nice to have those types of relationships for sure.
1: Yeah, it's huge as far as finding the right partners and then it's easier after the, always the first transaction. How do you determine like sharing of the development fee? What goes into the process, Like more of like the methodology?
0: So again, given that it's binary investment, it's certainly not inexpensive equity and we're not really shy about that part. I mean, it's high risk capital and that's why There's very few people doing it, if any, really, but our approach is to obviously protect our invested capital and make sure that we're getting a reasonable return. And that's also why we stage our investment as we start making progress in the course of development. But generally speaking, we're trying to get our capital back plus a return, and then we want to make it, and that's priority number one, obviously, and then we make it as fair as we can with the developer. Their share is somewhere between 30 and 50% following the return of our capital and the return. So that's been working for the folks that we're doing deals with currently, and it's pretty palatable altogether in the market. I mean, our proposal is that the developer has a risk list, has zero capital at risk by the time we get involved. So they've spent some money to date. We replace that capital plus pay a fee depending on the project. And then we're going to pay for everything going forward and the developer just has to do their scope which is like i said flexible and sometimes it's broader and sometimes it's more narrow but we kind of play that by project by project but they have zero capital at risk they're in for sweat equity which is which is very valuable to us and so we're happy to share amicably following the return to capital
1: sure and i actually think most developers like that structure better than Other development capital providers who provide a high interest rate for the development capital, more like double digit interest rates. And then depending on how long the project takes to develop, the developer's on the hook for that.
0: Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, like, I'll be honest, our structure is not for everybody. A lot of developers, depending on the stage of the project and the amount of work that they've done and how it, literally physically and emotionally attached to the project they are, it's hard to let go of that project sometimes. But our position is we're, like I said, we're these are binary bets and we're putting you know, real capital out the door and we're paying fees and reimbursement of costs at, at time zero. And then we're paying for everything else going forward. So, we're wearing the entirety of the financial risk. In exchange for that, we have to own the entirety of the project. And so if you've spent the last 12 months developing this project, it might feel uncomfortable to give 100% of that asset away to a capital source. I and mean, that goes back to your earlier question about how do you work with developers? like they have to trust us too. So it's not like, I'm sure they've kissed some frogs on on the financing side as well. And we get that. So there's a trust factor on both sides. Like I said, they're gonna have to give us 100% of the asset and that's sometimes uncomfortable. And so we're really trying to make something where the old adage, like a good deal, neither party is excited or upset. They're both kind of like, yeah, sure. We're trying to get to that middle ground where they feel comfortable and feel like like we're a good fit for them and there's some upside for them and they're incentivized to move this project along. And the same thing for our side, that the capital is protected, that we feel like they're a good partner. We think the way we structure the deal incentivizes both parties to wanna move forward because there's zero capital at risk for the other guys and a bunch of upside. Seems like there's a fit in everybody's Interest should be aligned. When it works, it works. But like I said, it's not necessarily for everybody. We wish it was, but it's not. Sure.
1: (laughs) And how do you scale development capital? Obviously, you're successful and your LPs want you to invest more. How do you scale something like development capital when you're doing early stage related projects? Yeah,
0: it's a delicate dance, to be honest. When we dispose of assets, there's obviously liquidity there and we can use that into another deal. But there's always some development that requires capital before you're disposing of the other assets. So there's no perfect cycle where you sell one and then buy another one and sell one and buy another one. <clears throat> so there's certainly some interim parts, but having demonstrated a track record with our LPs, they're really comfortable with the process and they're comfortable with how we're selecting deals and how we're approaching risk and how we're mitigating that risk. If need to be, we'll go do a capital call, and while we're disposing of another asset or while we're just a development cycle. So right now we're in uh, like peak development for three portfolios. So it's capital intensive and it's time intensive. And that's just the way these cycles go, as you well know. But yeah, it's really just a matter of a combination of trying to get enough capital in disposition to reinvest. And then also having really good partners who understand what we're doing and, and understand their you know that we may need a capital call from time to time. And so they're They're super flexible and they're really supportive in what we're doing and they're comfortable with what we're doing. So I think honestly, that's a huge part of our success and why we're able to be out there doing as many deals as. Basically, we can find, you know, our partners, I wouldn't say we have an unlimited amount of capital. Dollar stretches pretty far. We feel like we'll run out of deals before we run out of capital.
1: Oh, wow. That's a great situation to be in.
0: Yeah. And I'm not sure that this business model would work if you don't have LPs that are happy with that or comfortable with that type of process.
1: Definitely. And it sounds like they're patient as well.
0: They are indeed. They're very patient folks.
1: And you know what's interesting to me is when we first met. I don't know if you actually remember the first time we met. We actually met through Mike Miglio, mm-hmm. who I used to work at Vanguard Energy Partners, and yep. we met in near Penn Station. And we I was at Lucy's. At Lucy's, mm-hmm. yes, we were
0: outside on the deck. It was one of those nights, in New York City spring afternoons. I remember.
1: It was a perfect day. It was amazing because like Mike was for a long time. Mike Castlemiglia was saying you have to meet Mike Delegala. I feel like you have to get along well and partner on stuff in the future. It's interesting how it's like a small industry. But I was kind of referencing it because at that point, it was an advisory firm. Then you transition to where you have these LPs investing and owning and operating projects. Mm -hmm. And then now you're actually providing development capital. Can you talk about a little bit what made you kind of make those sort of, I guess, pivots? Because it's interesting. Our podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. It would be great to get your perspective on that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Sean and I did start this kind of advisory consulting thing. And, and at the time, I I guess that was like 2010 or 2011. There was just an opportunity to share this financial skill set that Sean and I had, which was basically asset valuation. Proformas just weren't well understood. There were people who were making assumptions, like, I mean, they still do, but there was just like an understanding of how to value these assets. And Sean and I just found a pretty good niche where we could work with, and we work in some huge names in the industry, like, you know, Martifer, REC. Sun Edison and, you know, a couple of other groups like that. And so Sean and I were basically acting as financial desk as for hire. So we basically would would help them value their portfolio and if need be market their portfolio uh, and do a lot of underwriting. So we were kind of like a do-man investment banking desk, our M&A desk, and it was fun and it worked for a long time but as the market started to mature we realized that we needed to pivot into a principal position and so we had worked with an offshoot of metropolis capital before and helped them raise some money for a project that they wanted to invest in it was like a co-sponsorship thing and we formed a really good relationship with them and we just mentioned to them that we were trying to raise a fund and we wanted to take on a long-term equity position and it was just a fit with metropolis so we talked about it for maybe two weeks and then we negotiated a contract for another two weeks and I would say within 30 days of our first conversation, we had formed a new company. It was a really comfortable fit and Metropolis is obviously the key to what we're doing now as far as providing capital from their LPs. We just pivoted to that and we got extremely lucky. I mean, we could have still been out looking for capital now. So it was really serendipitous and it was a good fit. And so that was kind of the impetus of moving from advisory to principal. And like I said earlier, at that point, we were trying to own and operate assets. And so we did that and started doing that in 15. And then in 17, we pivoted to this kind of development investment thesis.
1: And it seems like with the development investment thesis, it's a shorter time frame than owning and operating. And it is. It's easier to structure and potentially a higher return as well. And then also, at least what I'm seeing is there's so much competition in the space to own and operate. Oh, Yeah. We basically
0: got forced out of that position. I mean, it was the market, like you just said. I mean, got NTP got very, very competitive and we were still private equity and we were relatively expensive. But at the time, fourteen, fifteen, and kind of 16, maybe 16 less so, but you could still do some Massachusetts SREC 1 and SREC 2 deals that were super healthy. And you didn't need to do that many of them to have a nice return and you could clip mid-teen coupons, no problem. And that's palatable to private equity. But when the market starts moving into, whether it's real or not, 6% unlevered, NTP pricing. It wasn't even NTP pricing. It was just mid-development pricing. We just couldn't compete with that. We had no interest in owning assets at that level. Because the LP's theory was, I can own another physical asset in another sector for better returns. And so, less risk. so that's really how we pivoted over to this. And Metropolis was very key in having this conversation with us. Like, okay, look, we have a bunch of money and this is what it costs. At Where in the development cycle do we fit where this cost of capital is appropriate? That was kind of the evolution of the current profile. But yeah, we absolutely got forced into another pivot to get to this for sure.
1: Yes, that's really interesting. I appreciate you explaining it. And it seems like you had a varied sort of career. What made you start your own company? Because our podcast is about entrepreneurship. What got you interested specifically about solar? You're not focused on other renewable energy or energy assets.
0: Yeah, Again, I was probably forced into entrepreneurship because I was a terrible employee in like almost every job I've ever had. so <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know the <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so this kind of just had to happen otherwise I'd be homeless but yeah, I think I was in sales and trading before, and it was fixed income, and I, I really liked it. I loved being on a trading desk, and it was a lot of fun. I did it for like five years, but I kind of wanted something different, like something like a little more tangible. And at that time, I hadn't really thought about project finance, but having moved into that, I mean, it's a really good fit for my skill set, I think. But I got into energy when I went back to school, and I just was looking for something that wasn't banking or sales and trading, and so that. But I loved markets. I thought that my path into energy would have been more like, at the time Waxman Markey was a thing in the house and it looked like the US was gonna have a price for carbon and I thought that I would just sit at some desk at a bank trading carbon options or something or emission options. <laughs> and that would have been cool and fun. And then when that failed, SREX were becoming a thing and again I was still market focused. And then I just started to look into more project finance like how these projects are, or how the SREX are actually being generated and then that kind of evolved into this project finance thing. But yeah, stepping out of my own in solar was certainly a thing at the time. But it just seemed like in 2010, 2011, there was opportunity. Advise, consult, market deals. And to be honest, like we were just doing some of our deals were just straight broker deals. And I think that's how Mike and those, me and David Munsky and those guys. I mean, we were just at some point, we were just trying to cross trades because there were a lot of assets and a lot of buyers, but they weren't necessarily finding each other. So we use that as an initial platform to start building into this more structured deal with our clients that we could provide financial services and beyond just kind of like intermediary brokerage type stuff. But yeah, and solar just seemed to be more, well, it was certainly more financeable. It's still more financeable. Wind just never really entered our sphere. We always stayed open to other technologies, but just from a deal flow perspective, it just always seemed to be solar. Like everybody else, there's storage conversations now and we're trying to get smart on that. And just because we think that's going to be a part of our some of our current portfolios and then certainly our future portfolios. So we're open to different types of de- technologies. It just seems like for now, our LPs are very comfortable with solar. Solar is generally financeable and there's still a crowd of people hanging out at NTP looking for good deals. So. <laughs>
1: yes, it would be interesting to see a, to get an idea of what trends you're seeing in financing. You mentioned a big trend with lower cost of capital basically coming in. There's a time as you know there's a lot of projects and not a lot of investors. Now there's so many investors especially at NTP and then the returns are not double digit for like private equity money. So mm-hmm. it seems like private equity is willing to take more development risks which you guys are actually doing that by getting involved Is there any other major trends? You talked about solar and storage, storage being something emerging Mm -hmm. in your portfolio. Is there anything else that you see that you haven't commented on? Because those are- No,
0: I mean, that's pretty much the market recap as we see it. There is certainly a cheap cost of capital and a deep pool of buyers at NTP. I think that there's private equity folks are moving further down the line. What we are seeing is it's not so binary between like there's development capital and then there's NTP. So now NTP folks are now looking to buy projects at LNTP just to kind of get ahead of the curve and maybe it's 100 basis points more expensive than their NTP price and then you have kind of like these mezzanine folks which are sitting in the middle yet another more expensive piece of capital but not binary type pricing the trend is certainly and i think it's good for the industry but the trend is certainly that people are moving more dollars sooner it's bad for me personally because i i like kind of being alone in our little niche of the market people are When I say people, you know, investment sources or capital sources are moving further down the development chain. But I I think overall, that's a really good thing for our industry. It just means that people are considering this to be a safer asset, which you and I have been around for a long time. And so we were thinking that this was super safe in 2010. And why weren't all the people that are here now? Why weren't they down there then? Because it just seemed so logical, you know, no moving parts. Double a rated schools and municipalities behind these PPAs, like this was a no-brainer. But now that's actually taken to come to fruition. And so it's just a sign of maturity of the market. It's a sign of the health of the market and our industry. And I think it's a really, really good thing that there's more capital here and that it's moving early on it just goes to show the risk and kind of like the macro assumption of this asset within the overall investment community is something meaningful. So
1: it's, it's very cool to see. These are all great insights. I appreciate it. So we're at the point of the podcast where you get to ask me two questions. I've been grilling you the whole time. I know you're an experience yeah, grilling
0: me. It's been tough. I'm sweating over
1: here. <laughs> I know you're an experienced podcast. Mike has been on Solar Wake Up, Jan Solar Wake Up. He's been interviewed as well on Nico Johnson's podcast. It's interesting because I speak to a lot of people who haven't been on podcasts and they have like a nervousness about it. It's interesting. Each guest has like requirements that they have. So I'm talking to an experience.
0: Well, to be fair, I've probably known all three of you guys forever. I mean, like just in my whole solar career. So this is just like talking to a friend. But if it was a stranger, I'd probably be super nervous, just like sweating through my shirt. Now it's easy talking yeah. to just like having a conversation that we've had before. But so, yeah, so questions for you. I know you're doing some other stuff outside of solar and mentioned that this is an entrepreneurial podcast. And so, and you are definitely an entrepreneur. You've been doing some really interesting stuff outside of solar. Just curious as to how you arrived there. If you were kind of out seeking alternate investments or alternate things, or it's just like your entrepreneurial spirit where you're just like, I've got renew kind of running and that's doing its thing. And what's next for me? What am I looking at? And how did you kind of get into those different sectors? Because I know you got your fingers in some different areas.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, Obviously, this show is about solar entrepreneurship. Uh, 95% of what I do is really renew energy on the solar side. And then there's the 5% which is like looking at different investment opportunities which is kind of crazy to me like my favorite show Shark Tank and I feel like not in the Shark Tank show but you know a shark there's like 5 to 10 investment opportunities that I get every week that wow. run, yeah runs the gamut of many different types of industries So it's been very interesting, and happy if there's anyone on the podcast if they have any investment opportunities, we're willing to look at it. I've invested very few.
0: And how did that come to pass? Like, were you out seeking opportunities, or somebody just brought you something, and it just it happened to fit for the place and the time and cost, et
1: cetera? Yeah. So it's interesting because I've always loved investing. So I actually like invest in stocks. So I kind of. Warren Buffett's sort of thing of growing companies that have a moat in their business. And I've been very successful at that. I've also invested in real estate, specifically in Jersey City, New Jersey, where I live and then our offices. I've invested in cryptocurrency small amounts because I think blockchain is eventually going to be transformational. So I feel like I should be involved in it and understand it. I'm also involved actually in another solar company where I basically provided sweat equity, where they looked, they reached out to me and they said, hey, we need help. We don't have the money to pay you, but we'll give you equity within that company. I was pretty confident with the management team. I did work for them free and added value actually with basically finding an investor for a portfolio of projects that they had in Massachusetts. I also found a private equity firm willing to provide VC funding to them uh-huh. as well. And then there's actually another company that about nine or 10 years ago, I was helping raise money for their venture. They basically take municipal solid waste and convert it to energy and ethanol. And during the whole process of helping them raise money. I got interested in actually investing in the company and then they're actually developing a project in Maryland. Everyone wants to actually talk about their restaurant investments, mm. uh, which people find very interesting.
0: Yeah, how are those?
1: It's been great. I'm a co-owner of five different restaurants. One's a Czech beer garden and smokehouse called Hudson Hall. And then four of them are a ramen restaurant called Ani Ramen. And how those opportunities came along was the Hudson Hall one was my friend, who's the managing member of Hudson Hall, has experience in the restaurant industry for 18 years in both New York City and New Jersey and has been extremely successful. Basically, he wanted me to be a part of it. It was basically like friends who invested yeah. in it. I'm a silent partner, but I help with like strategy and bringing events there. And then we actually discussed this on another podcast, but Ani Ramen was one of my favorite restaurants in Jersey City. I love ramen. I've been to Japan and had ramen.
0: That's thorough research, sir. (laughs)
1: Yes. So actually, it's interesting because my Muay Thai instructor in Jersey City, one of the owners of Ani Ramen actually works out there, basically reached out to the owner of this Muay Thai gym that I'm a member of. Hey, are you interested in investing in Ani Ramen? And then he asked me, "Hey, can you analyze this investment for me because you're in the restaurant industry at Hudson Hall?" That I analyzed and said, "Oh, I could help. Yeah.
0: It
1: for me." And then it's interesting because even with Ani Ramen, I'm a solid partner. But we're developing our own projects. We're talking to commercial industrial building owners for solar, and sometimes like we're talking to strip malls or malls. And then they're like, hey, we're looking for a restaurant or a bar. Do you know any? And then of, oh, course- I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of course, I'm like negotiating Hudson Hall and Ani Ramen. So it's interesting sure. how like there has been it's kind of a synergy, right? Between mm-hmm. the restaurant industry and the solar industry. And then also most of our clients don't want to come to my office. They mm-hmm. rather go to those restaurants for lunch, dinner. We have events. We're having a summer solstice coming up June 20th. Mm-hmm. And then also I learn from like the talented entrepreneurs that I'm working with, they all have like track records of success. So even mm. though they're in other industries, I see what they're doing and even they will actually provide feedback on the solar stuff or they even have real estate connections mm. or land, you know, so it's interesting it's adding a lot of value. And there's another exciting investment that I'm still in the process of negotiating. So hopefully I'll be talking about it sometime soon. And it's a totally different industry and totally different from everything else that I just talked about.
0: Wow, that sounds fun.
1: Yeah, it's exciting. I'm solar. Obviously I'm passionate about renewable energy and sustainability. But I love also passive income where I'm not actively involved in distributions. I also learn a lot and it keeps me on my toes. And I'm also surprised how many of these companies are actually reaching out to me to help with like strategy and suggestions. So it's awesome experience and I learn a lot from these interactions.
0: I look forward to hearing more about that update. Maybe some pod later this summer, you'll do something about that one.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I might have the CEO of that company come on to the podcast and hopefully we finalize on an agreement next week and it's something that I'm excited nice. about. Well, congrats and good luck. Keep you yeah, posted. Yeah, definitely. I'll keep you posted on it. Do you have any other questions or we could conclude the podcast?
0: No, I think that's it. I mean, I was going to ask you what's next, but it sounds like this thing, whatever it is, is, <laughs> is you know, the big secret is next. But uh, that's awesome, man. It's exciting, man. It's nice to be in a position to look around at other investments, doing what we do all the time and trying to like, Fold that into other opportunities is super interesting and it must be fun to and rewarding and satisfying to actually be doing it, even if it's only five percent of your time. It's just nice to have some a little side hustle, if you will.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm always hustling and side hustling as well, as you know. It's interesting too, because I also look at the value with putting both the brands together, meaning renew energy and these different brands. Yeah. This opportunity that I'm talking about as well, it kind of meshes with the brand. That's a totally yeah. I mean, if there's
0: cross investing and stuff you're doing, that's awesome. Yeah, well, nice, man. Thanks for having me. This was really cool. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you for your time, Mike. If people are interested in learning more about your company and or even other developers are looking for development cap, what's the best way that they could learn about you or get in contact with you?
0: Probably by email, which is uh, just Mike at uh, DGEPM. So David Gary edwardpetermichael.com. And certainly contacted by there. And then my website, I was directed to the website, but we're kind of revamping it. And so the website's not great at the moment, I I must admit. But it'll certainly give you an idea of who Metropolis Capital is and the type of stuff that we're doing. It needs a pretty substantial facelift at this point. So that's one of our summer projects. But there's still contact info on there. So certainly feel free to reach out. We'd love to talk to you.
1: Definitely. And we'll put it on the notes of the podcast as well. That'd be awesome. Thank you, Mike. This is an amazing interview. I appreciate your perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure, man. Good luck with the new venture. I'm excited to hear about it.
1: I'll definitely give you the download. <laughs>
0: Thanks, man.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now. Building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can.